100 years ago, the world's richest person was John D. Rockefeller. He was an oil tycoon whose personal net worth, if you adjust it for inflation in today's money, he was worth $400 billion. One man, $400 billion, if you adjust, adjust for inflation to today's standards. That is a lot of money. You look at Bill Gates, one of the richest people there is today. Bill Gates wasn't even worth a quarter of that. Now, one, at one point in John Rockefeller's life, he was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough for you? How much money is enough? Many of you have already probably heard what the answer is that he gave. He said, just a little more. Just a little bit more. And you would think that if a person could achieve fulfillment and satisfaction through accumulating possessions or through succeeding in your pursuits, you would think that John D. Rockefeller would have found it. But he didn't. And I think it's worthy the question to ask, why didn't he find it? Why wasn't he satisfied with $400 billion? Or at that point, it was just a couple billion. But still, I mean, you just for inflation, that's a lot of money. Why wasn't he satisfied? The reason is that if we are seeking our treasure in anything except for Jesus, we will ultimately be left thinking, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We are in a series right now called The End of Me. And throughout the series, we're starting off in a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And then we're jumping to another passage to see how these principles play out in real life. And the Beatitudes serve sort of as a, a, a statement of Jesus' core values. And when you look at the, the statement of core values in God's kingdom, it's really like Jesus is taking the world's values and turning them upside down. So I invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to dig in to Matthew chapter 5 and the idea of being empty so that we can be filled by Jesus. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this world to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. We confess, though, that so often we are seeking our life elsewhere. We, we look to other things for satisfaction and fulfillment, but we also recognize that so often, like John Rockefeller, we end up thinking, you know what, I just need a little bit more. I need that thing over there. If I just get this, then I'll, then I'll be happy. But Lord, I pray that today, through your word and through the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, that you will impress upon us in a fresh way how we can find life in you. Lord, open our eyes to the things that we are seeking that can never satisfy us so that then we can surrender those and we can follow you faithfully and experience the life that you have for us. So, Lord, please work in our lives. Help the word, uh, your word, scripture, not merely be words on a page or interesting knowledge to learn, but help us to apply it to our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we talked about the first week in the series, that even though we are broken people, we at times are poor in spirit, we can be made whole by Jesus. The next beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We looked at this last week, that even though we face sadness and trials and pain and suffering and and just at times just heartbreaking experiences, God can still bring blessing and joy out of those circumstances. 
Now, jumping ahead to verse 6, we're focusing today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So it's talking about righteousness, and in this context, this righteousness talks about a life that is lived in conformity to God's will. It's describing a person who is surrendering themselves to God, who's allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through them. We have to understand that Jesus is not just looking for people who are going to be half-hearted or lukewarm about him. He's not just looking for fans. He's not looking for homeboys or uh, enthusiastic admirers. He's looking for fully devoted followers. And in this passage, he says, you know what? If you are thirsty to know God better, if you are hungry to want to do God's will, he will be there to meet you and he will fill you. Now, I want to dig into this further by turning us to John chapter 4. So I invite you to turn your Bibles over to John 4. And in John 4, Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They're traveling north from a region called Judea in Israel to a region called Galilee. These are sort of like two different counties in the nation of Israel. But in order to go from Judea to Galilee, they had to go through a region called Samaria, which was right in the middle of them. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 4. Verse 3 says that Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so what's going on here? It's about noon. Jesus and the disciples have been traveling for a while. They decide to stop. And the disciples go into town to buy lunch. And Jesus stays out there by a particular well. And as he is sitting there, middle of the day, this lone Samaritan woman comes out to draw water from the well. She comes out there to draw water, and we aren't told a whole lot about her immediately, but already at this point in the passage, you can begin to read between the lines and infer this woman had a lot of brokenness, a lot of emptiness in her life. For instance, women back in that culture, when they went to a well for water, they would go either early in the morning or late in the evening, not in the heat of midday because it was too hot and they would go in groups. It was a social affair. There are a number of reasons for that, but the bottom line is they wouldn't necessarily go there alone. But here comes this woman, a Samaritan woman, going to a well in the blazing heat in the middle of the day all by herself. You can already begin to infer there's some emptiness. She was probably a bit of a social outcast. The other women really wouldn't have necessarily wanted to associate with her, so that's why she is alone at a unique time there at the well. And as she comes there, Jesus is already there, and Jesus says, Woman, will you give me a drink? You may wonder, okay, why is this significant? Why is Jesus asking for a drink? Well, on the one hand, he may very well have been thirsty. I mean, it's hot, they've been traveling, he may have been thirsty, but, but there's also a deeper significance to him asking for a drink of water. And ironically, he's asking her for a drink of water because he recognizes in her a thirst that she has not been able to quench with anything. 
Now let's pick up the um, story in verse 10. He asks her for water. She says, hey, how can I give you water? Why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We don't associate. Jesus answered her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So Jesus is using this image of living water, and it's a metaphor for this idea that what Jesus can give is so much greater than anything else that the world has to offer. It truly satisfies because what Jesus is doing here is he's aiming to fill her empty heart and ours as well. We have to recognize that everyone we meet is thirsty. I mean, people are thirsty for different things, thirsty for recognition, thirsty for success, thirsty for popularity, for love, for security, for peace, for a sense of purpose in their lives. People are thirsty And they're looking various places to quench that thirst. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 14. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Now this woman, even as Jesus talks about something that will quench her deepest thirst, this woman is still thinking superficially about liquid H2O that comes from that well. So Jesus changes the subject to try to drive home his point about this living water that will quench her thirst. He says in verse 16, changing the subject, Go, call your husband and come back. What Jesus is doing here is digging deeper. He's trying to reveal how thirsty her heart really is. She says, verse 17, I have no husband. What she's doing is dodging the real issue. She's trying to hide the pain that is in her heart. And Jesus then, again still in verse 17, he says, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So Jesus points to the reality that she kind of is right in saying that she doesn't currently have a husband. But she's already had five failed marriages. And now she's living with a man who's not her husband. Probably because he is too ashamed to actually marry her. But he likes keeping her around because of the sexual benefits. And so here you have this woman who is a deeply broken woman. She's cast aside by society. She's come to the end of herself. She really doesn't know where else to turn. And now there is Jesus who is here, who's trying to give her hope. Now when he's able to share things that she was trying to keep secret about herself, about these marriages and such, she surmises, you know what, this guy must be someone special. He must be a prophet. And then a very interesting and important theological discussion ensues. We're going to skip through most of that for sake of just our focus today. We're going to cut to the chase in verse 25. After this theological discussion, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So this woman recognizes that Jesus is someone special, not merely a teacher, not merely a prophet. He is the promised Messiah. And the moment that she makes that recognition, two things happen. First of all, the disciples return from the town with lunch. And, and right after that, the woman takes off, leaves her water jar at the well, which is a significant thing. She's so excited, she heads back to town in order to tell the other people about Jesus. But I don't want us to miss the conversation that takes place between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples have brought lunch back, and they assume, Jesus, you must be hungry. I mean, makes sense. It's lunchtime, and typically when lunchtime starts to come around, our stomachs growl, and even if we're not that hungry, the clock says it's lunchtime, so you know what? Time to eat. It makes sense that he would be hungry, but he says, you know what? I have food that you know nothing about. And they're all confused. So Jesus says, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's a very interesting statement But what Jesus is basically saying is that he has received a fulfillment from a place that they don't necessarily know about right now. He's receiving his fulfillment from the right place from God. You remember Matthew 5, 6 that we're focusing on? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus and this idea of righteousness is talking about doing God's will. Jesus lives Matthew 5, 6. His whole life revolves around doing God's will. That's what he's been doing here in John chapter 4. And in that, he has found a sustenance and a satisfaction that blows away any type of food that the disciples brought from town. That's why Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And this was the key to Jesus' ministry. That his whole ministry operated from this place of fullness. So oftentimes in our lives, we feel kind of empty. We feel drained. We are looking for a sense of identity and significance in our lives that, that we can never quite nail down. But Jesus was never like that. He always operated from a place of fullness because he had fully surrendered himself to his heavenly father. He, he was constantly communing with his heavenly father. He was having his fuel tanks, metaphorically speaking, refueled with the right fuel from God. And that points to the problem that we oftentimes face in our lives. The reason why we oftentimes feel empty is that we are putting the wrong fuel into our lives trying to find that sense of identity and significance, trying to fill up the emptiness, we're looking frequently to the wrong places. We see the emptiness, we want to fill it up, but we're filling it up with the wrong stuff. I mean, you look at this woman here in John chapter 4. I mean, she, um, she was looking to all these relationships to fill her up. But that failed her again and again and again and again. Because if we look to the wrong place, we will not be fulfilled. Because only Jesus 
can ultimately satisfy. But after coming to Jesus, this woman began overflowing with joy and with new life. Let's look ahead to verse 39 through 42 to see what happens next. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony that he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So what we see here is that Jesus' eternal life is overflowing through this woman. Remember back in verse 14, Jesus says that the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman was broken. She had been mourning. She was empty. But Jesus made her whole. He filled her with joy. He gave her a purpose. She became one of the first evangelists going back to her town and proclaiming the news about Jesus and pointing people to eternal life through him. And many people did become believers in Christ over those couple of days of meeting Jesus. God worked through her, redeemed her, took her emptiness, filled her up, made her whole, gave her joy, gave her a purpose. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This woman here in John chapter 4, she was thirsty. She was empty. But she is now filled with the abundant life that Jesus alone can give. Now, I want to turn kind of the the focus back to ourselves, but not in a self-centered sort of way, but asking, what fills us? Where are we looking for our sense of fulfillment, for our sense of satisfaction? Because we're all thirsty for something. The question is, how are we seeking to satisfy that thirst that we have? The Bible is very clear that the world has a certain way of operating, but oftentimes the world's way of operating is very different than God's way, and the world's way will leave us empty, wanting more, never fully satisfied, always thinking, just a little more. Just a little more. And then we get that thing that we think will satisfy and it's nice for a while and then we're still back to the, yeah, just a little bit more. I need something else now. This is why we are told in Romans 12 to do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because when we conform to the ways and the values of this world, when we are seeking our satisfaction and our fulfillment in the same place as the world does, we will always be let down we will always ultimately miss God's will for our lives. So I want to do a little bit of diagnostics on our lives, a little bit of analysis, just trying to discern where are we seeking our fulfillment in our lives. I want to point out three primary places that our world looks for fulfillment and ask, you know what? When we do a reality check in our lives, are we looking there as well? One place that our world looks to for fulfillment is in consumerism. This is the stuff that we buy. For 16 years, I owned a black Dodge Ram. And for a number of years, that black Dodge Ram owned me. Meaning that I looked to it for, for my sense of identity. I invested so much in that truck. It was more than just a truck. 
It was a sense of significance for me. I mean, I invested money into paying for it. Then I invested every penny I had. At one point, at the end of one semester of college, I had $500 left. I was going back home for the summer working a job. So I figured, okay, what's the best way to spend this $500 on the truck? Bought stuff to make the truck faster, more powerful. I spent a lot of money modifying the exterior of that truck as much as you can as a college student and stuff like that. And, and so this truck owned me. And if only satisfaction in life was as easy as buying fancy stuff. It would be a whole lot easier in, in one sense if that would work. At least according to our world's values, that would be easier. Because this is, this is how our world oftentimes runs. You won't look at advertising. Watch TV commercials. TV commercials pretty much assume that we are thirsty, that we have emptiness in our lives. We have a void that needs to be filled. And so the TV commercial in a 30-second slot gives us the answer of how to be filled. Advertisers basically are saying, okay, you have this void, buy this phone, buy this pair of shoes, buy this pill, go on this vacation, buy this car, and you will be satisfied. After all, look at the expression of that man's face as he drives his new red convertible off into the sunset with a beautiful woman. You can be like that too. The thing is, this stuff does not satisfy. It will ultimately leave us needing more, thinking just a little bit more. That's what consumerism does. It causes us to literally buy into the notion that by buying things, we can receive fulfillment. But it's a lie. It leaves us empty. And wanting more. Many of you are probably familiar with Snickers candy bars. Who can tell me what the slogan of Snickers is? Satisfies. Satisfies. Good job, Skip. Here. Want some candy bars? You don't want them? Who else? Here, Mark. There you go. Your dad has one. You guys can, since there are two of you, you can take his. And you can eat it? And how long will a Snickers bar satisfy you? 30 seconds. 30 seconds? Are you gonna, can you eat it in 30 seconds? Okay. <laughs> you probably could. And you know what? It'll probably satisfy you. I mean, it'll be in your stomach giving you some energy for a little bit longer. But reality is, say, give it an hour. And you're probably going to be hungry again. Because Snickers, you know, it's a cool slogan, and it says it right there on the back. Snickers satisfies. And it'll satisfy your hunger for a little while, but then you're going to be hungry again and again and again. You need just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And that's the lie that consumerism causes us to buy into. That by getting more stuff, we can be satisfied. But buying stuff will never ultimately satisfy us. But so oftentimes we look to that to fill that void in our lives. Another thing that our world looks to is busyness. It's the stuff that we do. Back in 2012, the New York Times ran an article called The Busy Trap. And it begins by examining how people today respond to the question, how are you doing? Now, throughout much of my life, when asked that question, the standard answer is, fine. doesn't really mean much. It's kind of like, hey, I see you there. How are you doing? I'm fine. I mean, it's just kind of an acknowledgement of of proximity, pretty much. Um, But today, the article says, when people are asked, how are you doing, the standard answer is becoming, I'm busy. I'm so busy. I'm, I'm crazy busy. And then the article goes on to say this. It says, notice that it isn't generally people pulling back to back shifts in the ICU 
or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. Instead, or what those people are is not busy but tired, exhausted. Instead, it's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've, quote, encouraged their children to participate in, they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety. And because they're addicted to busyness and dread, or because they're addicted to busyness and they dread what they might have to face in its absence. Let me read that last sentence again. They're addicted to busyness and they dread what they might have to face in its absence. It's saying, okay, there's a void in people, an emptiness, a thirst. And through all these activities that they're doing, they're trying to fill that void in their lives. Later on, it says busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, obviously your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, if you're completely booked and demand every hour of the day. I mean, this is not written like in a Christian book about, hey, you need Jesus. This is just someone in the New York Times just evaluating the current circumstances of life and digging beneath the surface of what's going on in the motives for the crazy, busy society that we have right now. You know, so many people have this drive to validate their sense of existence through the stuff that they do. And so they are filled with busyness. They're looking to that for validation instead of looking to Jesus. Now, a third category, we could probably list a ton of these categories and go on uh, for a long, long time until you get really hungry um, and need multiple Snickers bars. But a third category I think is quite significant in our culture is entertainment. And that's the stuff that we watch. Do you know that the average American watches about a thousand hours of TV per year? Now, I imagine around this room, a number of us are well below that. Some are probably above it, but that's, that's average, 1,000 hours a year. Do you know that if you f- figure that out over the course of an average lifetime, that will yield eight hours watching TV? Eight hours. That would be pr- pretty interesting. Eight years. How about that? Eight years watching TV. And for 10-year-olds, that might sound pretty cool. Wow, that's a lot of TV. That sounds like a lot of fun. For me, that sounds pretty depressing. Eight years of our lives devoted to watching TV. And today, other technologies have made this issue even bigger, especially for people my age and younger, my generation. It, It comes through tablets and cell phones and computers and spending time in the internet. The average American spends five hours a day, at least younger Americans, spend five hours a day hooked up to the internet through their phones, through the tablets, through computers. Yet you calculate that out over an average lifetime, that is 16 years connected to the internet via cell phone, tablet, or computer. Now, I recognize that, that many people multitask. They, they're on their cell phone while the TV's on, the radio's playing, and they're having a major conversation with someone in their family. But just to add those two together, the TV time with the, with the internet, tablet, phone time, that's almost a quarter century for the average American devoted to watching screens. Now, God entrusts us with life. We are to be stewards of the life that God gives us. We're told in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
All of us are going to stand before God one day and have to give an account for our lives. How are we going to account, if we are an average American, for spending one-third of our lives dedicated to screens in front of us? Now, there are good things that can come from these screens. And I admit that I've been sucked into some of this as well. But it's a legitimate question of our lives being filled with things besides Jesus. We're trying to find a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in things that cannot satisfy, that ultimately crowd out what God wants to do in our lives. It's a very, I think, very legitimate question. And I want to return now to Jesus, the one who can ultimately satisfy because the consumerism, busyness, entertainment, the stuff we buy, do, and watch, those cannot be the places that we find our ultimate satisfaction if we ever want that void to be filled once and for all. Jesus is the only one who can do that. And that comes from the joy of knowing him and doing his will. And I believe that vast majority of us, if not all of us, genuinely do want to be filled with Jesus. We want him to be enough in our lives. The problem that we face is that so frequently we are filled by other things. We are looking to other things in addition to Jesus or instead of Jesus to satisfy us. And what happens then is that there isn't room for Jesus to come in and to transform us from the inside out. This week, uh, there was some construction going on. You can, I mean, I had a question this morning. Hey, what's going on over here on Harrison Street? That's the street I live on. They're reconstructing the whole street. Um, this last week, they're, they're redoing water mains and laterals and stuff like that. Our water was shut off for a couple hours one afternoon. Came back on that evening. I went to fill up my water bottle that I used for cycling because uh, I was going on a ride the next morning. I clipped it into my bike. Next morning, I got on there, got out and was riding, drank some water. Didn't taste that great. It wasn't terrible. It, I can tell you it definitely wasn't brown because I was watching for that. It wasn't brown. It was clear, but it didn't really taste that good. It was a bit off. And thankfully, I knew a place that I could stop to get fresh water. And so I stopped there along my route and went in there, took off the top. Now, what do you think I did next? You think I poured it out? I did. What would happen if I just, I, I, I'll tell you, I hadn't drunk much up to that point, even though I'd already been out there for quite a while because it didn't taste that good. I probably... It was probably down to about there. What would have happened if I just stuck it right into the faucet without cleaning it, dumping it out first? Same taste. Yeah, I mean, you get a little bit of fresh water in there. But reality is, most of that fresh water, once it filled up to the top, is just going to start coming out. And the taste is going to be relatively the same. Well, there would be a little influence of fresh water, but not that much. Because there wasn't room without dumping out what was there. You have to empty what is there in order to be filled with what is new and good. And it's that way in our lives as well. That oftentimes we have a lot of good things in our lives. I mean, that, that are tastier and nicer than kind of foul water. But if we allow our lives to be filled by good things, by the stuff we watch, do, and buy, if that's where we're looking for fulfillment, there may very well not be room for Jesus to come in and give us the satisfaction that we're really yearning for. And so it begs the question of, do we need to take some steps to make changes in our lives. Maybe this week the thing to do is just start by praying. Jesus, open my eyes to where I'm looking for fulfillment. Loosen the grip that, that things have on my heart that can't ultimately fulfill me. Praying that prayer with genuineness is a place to start. Then there may be other steps that we need to take. Maybe it's going on a Facebook fast for a while. Maybe it's deciding, okay, for the next week, we're not going to turn on the TV. 
For some of you, that sounds terrible. How about this one? A little bit harder. Your cell phone. For many of us, we're glued to that cell phone. What if when you get home in the evening, you put that cell phone someplace and you don't pick it up till the next morning? Sounds like torture for a lot of people. But what if you did that? What about just deciding, okay, we're going to block off our schedule. We're just going to spend a couple of evenings at home with our family. Another torture for many people. But, and that might require saying no to some even good things. But sometimes we have to take those steps. And odds are good if you do that, it's going to make you a bit uncomfortable. But what it'll probably also do is reveal where your heart really is. Where are you looking for fulfillment? Because if you get really, really uncomfortable by doing those things, it may very well mean that you're putting way too much emphasis on those, that that is what's filling you rather than Jesus. And if you do any of these types of things, trying to make some changes, I want to encourage you, there's going to be a void there. Let Jesus be the one to fill that void. Spend time with him in Scripture. Read a book that draws you closer to Jesus. Spend time praying. Maybe spend time with Christian friends talking about growing in your relationship with God. Allow that void to be filled with Jesus because he is the only one who can satisfy. And the cool thing is it's very freeing when Jesus is the one filling that void. Because until that happens, we're always going to be searching for something more, just a little bit more. But when Jesus comes and fills us, gives us our identity, significance, security in life, it frees us. I look at my truck. I had it for 16 years. After I finally surrendered that truck to God and and Jesus became more and more prominent in my life, there was a freedom. I still had the truck for many years. But there's a freedom from not being mastered by it, by not being owned by it. Where then, you know what? It was a service to others. It helped me out. A nice piece of transportation. But it was not my source of identity. There's a freedom from being able to enjoy things that we buy, enjoy things we do, enjoy things we watch without being mastered by them. Because Jesus is the only one who can satisfy us. This week in the life groups for the end of me that meet during the week, the DVD features a man named Ken Mansfield. Ken Mansfield was a man who just had a lot of worldly success for many decades, but it left him empty. Then later in life, he met Jesus. And as you watch this clip from the video that we'll view this week of Ken Mansfield, I want you to just listen to the joy and the freedom in his voice that comes from Jesus. The people now that see me now and knew me when, and they go, you're what now? I said, well, yeah, I'm a minister now. We travel, we speak at churches and colleges and conventions or things like that, giving my testimony. I was speaking at a large church in Southern California, and after my testimony, the pastor would come up and join me for a Q&A period. And he called on a lady way in the back of the auditorium. I don't know how he even saw her. So when I was a very young girl, I used to go to this incredible church that had a most wonderful youth program for girls. And every year, we would go away for one whole week as a retreat. And we sat down, he said, okay, here's what we're gonna do tonight. I'm gonna pass around a hat. In that hat are gonna be the names of some very decadent young people. You will take a name out and you will pray for that person's salvation until you either know in your heart or you have empirical knowledge that this person has come to the Lord. The names in the hat were the Beatles and the people that were with them. She said, me and my three girlfriends all picked the same name out of the hat, Ken Mansfield. Who's Ken Mansfield? She said, I was, I was going for Paul McCartney. I wanted to pray for Paul McCartney, you know. 
Every morning when I opened my Bible, there was that name. I promised, and I prayed for that person's salvation. She said, I got into the workplace and started getting successful, didn't have quite as much time for church and for Bible reading. Eventually, I really started rocking and rolling. I was having a good time. She said, finally, I just turned my back on the Lord. And she said, I was just really having a great time. About a year ago, everything came crashing down. It was awful. She said about a month ago, all of a sudden I had this feeling that God was like tugging at my heart saying, hey, my child, remember how sweet it was when we used to go away on the retreats together and how it was when you were with me, when you walked with me, how special and how peaceful your life was? I woke up this morning and there was an ad in the newspaper that said a man named Ken Mansfield, who used to be with the Beatles, is here giving his testimony at this church tonight. She said, I looked at that ad, and it was like it was just jumping at me, at me like God was saying, hey, have I ever left you alone? I answer prayer, don't I? I've come here tonight, Pastor, to tell you that I'm back. Now, this is a large congregation. This pastor and I had seen everything in our lives, and we were both just standing there. We couldn't even talk, you know. It was very clear to me that God had always, you know, kind of had his hand on me, just saying, come on, come on, let's go. Never give up. Never give up. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to give us life. And I pray that you will release us from the idols that so often vie for our attention. Lord, help us to be honest with where we really are. Look at, I look at Ken Mansfield and I see the transformation you've done in his life. He had so much worldly success. And just like John Rockefeller, maybe to a lesser degree a bit, but still... If things this world could fulfill, he would have found it. But he didn't, because they can't. But Jesus, you offer living water that will quench our deepest thirst. And I pray that each one of us will find our hope in you so that we can get off that treadmill of things just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and so that then we can rest in Jesus and find that there is absolutely nothing that compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Lord, help us to come to that point where we can surrender it all and experience the fullness that you give when we are empty. We pray these things in your name.